What happens uh, when you replace God's word, that is his authority, and put yourself in the place of greatest authority? Uh, Our actions, they kind of follow our thoughts, don't we? And so if you think you're in charge, that will change the way you behave, won't it? You know, our deeds follow our doctrine, one person wrote, I was reading this week, our our behaviour follows what we believe. One scholar put it this way, when you make up your own religion, you make up your own reality. Now many of us around us, many people around us will acknowledge the existence of some God or another, but it would be a God that they've kind of fashioned, the way that they want God to be. If they believe in the God in the Bible, they say, yeah, it may not be the God that you think of, but I have kind of God in the way that I want him, if you like. They're king of their minds, so they think. So they, people do say to me, you know, I know what you're saying, Andy, but actually, I kind of see God in a different way to you, if that's okay with you. And that is perfectly a, a legitimate belief in a culture that assumes that self-expression is kind of normally right. And that truth comes from within. God is to most people just like a a glove puppet that you bring out at Christmas. And therefore, if it feels right, people do it, don't they? Who is God to say otherwise? And so over the last generation, uh, I've seen certainly, and I guess many of you have as too, what was considered in my childhood utterly immoral, unjust, obscene and offensive is now portrayed as utterly normal within the school curriculum that my boys hear. Truth from God is just ignored, and it's replaced from a truth within each individual heart. What you believe you see affects what you do. And as the Western world has moved further and further and further away from God... As he's revealed himself in his word, the Bible, the effects are there for all of us to see, aren't they? Whether it's what people believe about marriage, the unborn or the elderly, if you take God out of the equation, well, people are left to believe what they think is best. And history has some very sober warnings for us on this subject. Of course, many people will point at the Christians and and say, hey, come on, guys, you've got... Your history's not necessarily the best, is it? So you've got a checkered past. There's a lot of bloodshed and warfare down to you guys. Warfare in the name of God. But I have to say, in three people alone, in the name of no God, three atheists in the last hundred years, Stalin, Mao and Hitler, well, they have been more responsible for more deaths than all the religions put together. In the name of no God. You see, what you believe affects what you do. So if you believe, as Christians do, as revealed in God's word, the truth of God's word, that humanity is made in God's image, well, that's always going to temper how you relate to other people. If you feel aggressive, well, you understand that whether you disagree with something, with someone, you still see them as God sees them, made in his image, to honour and glorify him. But if you believe as Nietzsche did and Stalin, Mao and Hitler lived out, if you believe in the the survival of the fittest and the strongest, then then you can assign any value that you choose to any particular people group. And what results? Well, you can justify anything. Genocide. 
anything. And you may think we've moved on. That as humanity around this world, we've progressed, been enlightened, if you like. I just want to challenge you and say, are you watching the news? If you take God, the God of the Bible out of the equation, if what you believe is man-made, well, genocide is perfectly legitimate. And don't think this is a problem just in the Middle East, whether it's the unborn in this country or the elderly in mainland Europe. It is rife. We don't like to talk about, talk about this at all, but it is there and it is here. And it isn't even the irrational. You might think, oh, there's some pretty you know, crazy people out there and they're doing some pretty crazy things. No, listen to this. Because the greatest thinkers of our time think that this kind of bloodshed is utterly logical. This is the outspoken atheist Peter Singer, ironically a professor of ethics in the USA at the moment at a very esteemed university. He recently argued that to sustain life, it ought to mean death for very many. That is, he felt that it was logical and a right means of survival. Therefore, the, unmo- the unborn, the unnecessary child, the physically weak, the disabled, the elderly, all should be killed, whether they like it or not. In a heavily publicised article. And that is all in the name of no God. You see, what you believe affects what you do. I have to say that today is probably the most sobering talk I will ever give. I'm sorry if it's your first time here. I have to say you knew this was coming. I've been preaching through Judges for the last three months and you knew these chapters were here. And I'm sorry, but I will not just somewhat remove them and miss out the difficult bits. Today is utterly sickening, both as you look out at the news, but also as you look here at God's word. Judges 17 to 21, you see, is probably the most graphic illustration of this very thing that I've been saying. That is, what we believe affects what we do. Now, I want to boil it down, if I can. Cast your eyes down. Chapter 17, the, the whole passage boils down to two sins, two small rebellions, it seems. Chapter 17, verse 2, is a theft. Micah. 1,100 shekels of silver from his mum. And in chapter 19, verse 2, there's the second, if you like, sin there, the sin of unfaithfulness there with the concubine of of the Levites. Let me give you a broad outline of where this sort of sits with the whole book. Um, This, if you like, is a, people would describe it as a double appendix, a double conclusion to the double introduction that began the letter. The double introduction is from chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, verse 6. But if you've been here a number of weeks, you will know what the refrain of this book has been. What has it been? As we go, there's been a cycle, uh, even a spiral, you might call it. My son reminded me this morning, it's a cycle of apostasy, Dad. Do you not know what that is? No, he didn't know either, but he'd heard it somewhere. Um, And you've seen it in chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 12, 4, verse 1, 6, verse 1, 10, verse 6, 13, verse 1. Every single time there's this repeated refrain and it simply says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But what had they done? They'd simply pushed God to one side. They formed essentially their own religion 
which then had radically transformed their lives, their behaviours. Each time you heard that repeated refrain, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Have you ever wondered when you get there, what were they doing? You never know. You never hear it. Of course, I've said each week, it was in their own eyes uh, that they, they were probably absolutely fine. Judges 17 to 21, though, is a detailed view of the Israelites doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. If you like, this is humanity's logical end. When you've taken God out of the equation, this is where we get to. It's a graphic description showing what you believe affects what you do. Now, uh, many of you helpfully kind of came back to me last week and said, the structure I kind of followed, I went through a kind of summary of the chapters and I gave a few pointers and application. Hopefully that was helpful. I'm going to do similar this week. I'm going to walk you through each chapter, summarise each one, point out some of the major things in it, and then hopefully apply it. We're going to go that way. It's going to be fast. So put on your seatbelts and let's go. Our first point is that, I've put it on your sheets, is man-made religion. Chapters 17 and 18 basically are this. Let me summarise, though, the story, if I can, very quickly. Chapter 17 begins, doesn't it, with this man called Micah. The whole story focuses around him. He's an Ephraimite, verse 1. He stole 1,100 shekels of silver from his mum. She brings down this curse, which she can't do, but she does. And there he hears it, and he goes, oh, better not do that. Takes the money back, and everything is kind of forgiven. He confessed. Micah, though, you look at him, he's neither really bad given what we've seen before in Judges, all really, really good. I know he nicked some money, but he's not really, really bad, okay? He's just weak, and he's unprincipled. Micah's mother now blesses her son, even though there's no repentance. It's the worst model of parenting you ever see in the Bible. The 1,100 shekels of silver, she gives 200 to a silversmith to create an idol or some objects for the Lord. Look at verse 5, chapter 17. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod, that's a priestly garment, and some idols and he installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. Following verses, a Levite comes along. I'll explain what a Levite is later on. And he comes along for a place to stay. Micah offers him a job, he's very pleased with himself and you get to the end of the chapter and he's kind of looking, look what I've obtained. All is good and merry in the life of Micah. That was chapter 17. Now let's go to chapter 18 very quickly now. Now this introduces the Danites, okay? It was one of God's uh, tribes, one of the people of God, and they were heading towards a territory to conquer it, we see. They come across this Levite, very boil the story down, that Micah is employed. They overwhelm the Levite. They go into the house of Micah. They take out all the objects of worship that have been created by the silversmith, and uh, they take them off with the Levites to join the tribe of Dan. So the Levite shifts from being the personal priest, if you like, to Micah, to become the tribal uh, priest of Dan. (coughs) Micah finds out, he chases them down, but the Danites threaten him. I love this verse, verse 25 of chapter 18. Don't argue with us, or some hot-tempered men will attack you. Whatever hot-tempered men are, and you and your family will lose their lives. Verse 26, so the Danites went on their way. And they go to Laish, how do you pronounce that? Laish. And they destroy the people, and they destroy the city. They rebuild the city, they call it Dan. And they set up the idol for themselves. But look at the last verse, if you can, of chapter 18. 
They continued to use the idols Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. This is not just some temporary failing. So that's the story. What can we learn? Let me give you some background for Levites. That's a pretty important place to start. Now, that when, when Joshua came in and conquered the land, previous book, um, the Levites were the only tribe that weren't given a section of the land themselves. They were rather distributed around all of the tribes in order to help God's people worship God. That was what a Levite did. Which explains why Micah is really rather chuffed. When a Levite comes to his door and says, you know, can you help me? And uh, will you be my priest? Yeah, he's really happy. Because it seems like he essentially can buy his allegiance to God, his worship of God. He's got his own personal worshipper in his household. But what's the main point of these two chapters? Well, as I've put down on your outlines, it's about man-made religion. Micah and his mother, despite all the clear instructions from God, think second commandment. Is that clear? Think second commandment. And despite Moses' reiteration of that commandment in Deuteronomy 12, they had completely forgotten God's instructions for his people. So Exodus 20 verse 4 says simply this, you know it. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So here you've got Micah and his mum and later on the Danites essentially thinking that they can honour God by doing the very thing that God has said no to. You know, very means that he's forbidden. Micah, his mother, thinks just, oh, we can buy God's favour. And even, she even thinks God is pretty cheap as well. Did you notice how she had 1,100 shekels of silver? And when she, when she got it back from her son, she didn't say, take the 1,100. She said, I'll oh, just have 200. I'll keep 900 for myself. But you can see their thinking most clearly right at the end of chapter 17. Look at it, verse uh, 13 there. You look what Micah says. He says, now I know that the Lord will be good to me. I'm all right with God now since I've got my own personal priest. And you, you get from the tone there that he's, there's nothing kind of, he's not worried about this situation. He seems utterly sincere, doesn't he? Maybe even fairly excited. Look at me, I'm all sorted. Yet he's purchased a Levite to help him in his own idolatry. And something that God utterly forbids. So what can we learn from this idolatry? I think, firstly, we've got to realise that God is is serious. He's real about these things. He cannot be bought. He can't be rolled out at Christmas and be just how you want him to be. He does not exist for our purposes. Actually, the complete opposite is true. We exist for his purposes, for his glory and for his honour. We cannot, you know, kind of write a check and just hopefully that will cover the indiscretions of the previous year. What is right and wrong is not defined by you, the truth that comes from within, your heart, your mind. The truth is not defined by a democracy. Truth is given from God. Right and wrong is revealed in his word. We cannot form God to what is most convenient to us and our desires. Whatever we feel, 
So Israel, Micah and his mother, they think, well, it seems, doesn't it? Chapter 17, verse 13, everything's fine. We're doing well here. In their eyes, everything is good. But sin is not what we perceive to be wrong. Evil, the word used here many, many times throughout this book, is what is evil in God's eyes. Not necessarily ours. God wants a sincere worship of our hearts and of our lives. And we cannot buy him. And likewise, we can't, we can't create anything in order to worship him, an idol or anything like that, because it is utterly insufficient in portraying God in his goodness, but also in his justice too. So we need to be careful. Now, I doubt many of us are going home thinking, can we find a silversmith on the way and make an idol? No, I doubt it. But we at all times will be tempted toward some form of man-made religion. Let's think of two possible situations where we might be tempted, if we can, just to apply this to us, hopefully today, where we might be tempted to fashion God into the way we want him to be, or to worship him in our way rather than his way. Let's think church to begin with, if we can, corporately. Now, the Levite's helpful in that. He's not without fault. I haven't mentioned him too much. Because Micah has made God very convenient rather than worshipping the God of the covenant. But the Levite should have made that very clear to him. God has spoken, his heart was clear. He wanted their worship, not as they defined, but as he defined. And the Levite, who was royally paid here, given clothes and food, being invited in the family, he would have said that you know, he was serving God. But it seems he was there for financial gain, first and foremost. He was more interested in the remuneration package rather than the worship of God. So as a church, I guess we must be careful to corporately keep our eyes fixed wholly on the proper object and means of our worship. So many things can distract us, uh, you know, take our eyes off where we should be worshipping and how we should be worshipping. That could even include good things, you know, whether it's finding a new building or whatever it may be. We must be ruthlessly God-centric in our worship and God-centric in the means of our worship, how we worship him too, hearing only him from through his word. We need to maintain our disciplines in, in coming back to him to hear him speak, otherwise we will not have a clue which way to go. Just like Micah. And his mum. The other is, I guess we need to watch is the idols in our lives. Look at that. Um, it's the theme of chapter 17, verse 6. It's the theme that's been repeated throughout this book. Everyone did as he saw fit. Careless teaching of God's word has led, led to sin within the people, but they thought they were actually worshipping God. Could it get much worse? They just can't see it. I love this little quote I picked up this week. It simply says this. It says, temptations become sins by action and idols by repetition. Temptations become sins by action and idols by repetition. How do we stop that cycle though? Because some of us so easily get on that through repentance and renewed obedience. Therefore, we need to watch out for those idols and watch out for those small disobediences in our lives. Here it just began with a small theft. But it led to the whole tribe of Dan going astray. 
worshipping idols. And later to the ten northern tribes as well going astray. And if you read on, and if you know your history, this escalates further and further and further. 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 12. Jeroboam comes along into that territory. And what happens? He upgrades the idol from silver to gold. And they keep on worshipping until God has to bring them down and destroy them. All of that from a son stealing some silver from his mum. And God's people ignoring his word and making up how they want to worship God. See, what we see here is man-made religion. And if you personally render God to a kind of how you want him to be, how you feel he ought to be. And in your eyes you may be fine, but in God's eyes, clearly shown through his word, you may be ignoring him. You may be disobeying him, just as Micah, his family, and later the whole tribe of Dan were. Be careful. Be careful how you're building God up to be something he is just not. Don't make your own religion, because it will lead to your own reality. Well, those are the effects so graphically uh, kind of portrayed in those early chapters, but it just gets bigger. I'm going to take you now to the next three chapters. If you've read ahead, you will know what's coming. But if you like, there should be a kind of certificate of warning up at this moment. This is the grimmest reading you will ever read in the Bible. As I've quoted before, when you make your own religion, you make up your own reality, and it won't be God's. Man-made religion brings man-made morality. And that is what we see here in chapters 19 through to 21. Let me summarise, particularly chapter 19, if I can, and I'm going to read a section to you, though it will be painful. Chapter 19 begins with another Levite and his concubine. Concubine, uh, verse 2, was unfaithful to her husband. And this starts a chain of events that essentially leads to a genocide. And the unfaithful concubine flees her husband and goes home in those early verses. After four months, he wants her back, probably for a bit of sex and also for a bit of status, because it was seen as uh, kind of a, a low thing to be disjointed in that way as a family. The husband goes off to her father's house, stays longer than he ought to have done, essentially smoothing with the in-laws, and then resolves to set off home in verse 9 in chapter 19. They set off towards Jerusalem, which is called Jebus here. Night comes and they choose not to stay in an alien hostile city, but rather go to Gibeah, just north of Jerusalem, only a few miles, about four or five miles apparently. I'm talking to JJ, is that right? And, uh, but it's in a different tribal area. It's in the tribal area of the Benjaminites. Safe, essentially, is what they're thinking. They go into the city square of Gibeah. And it would have been normal practice for someone to have taken them in for the night. Hospitality would have been shown. Verse 15... There they are. An old man comes along in verse 16. He invites them into the house and by verse 21 they washed their feet and they began to eat. I'm going to read from verse 22 down to the end of the chapter. Be warned. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded them, um, surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house. Bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile, since this man is my guest. Don't do this disgraceful thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them 
and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful, disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn they let her go. At daybreak the woman went back to the house where her master was saying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into twelve parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. The Levite here is essentially provoking a response. Please don't think of him as the hero. This isn't, um, there isn't, there is just no one in this whole chapter should you align yourself with. Not one. If you know your Bible, you will know this is very similar to the account of Sodom in Genesis 19. And I think what we're seeing here is simply God is saying, you know, that they were those people. God's people are now just as bad, if not worse. In a sense, these are the effects of man-made religion. It brings a man-made morality. Let's look at the old man, the Ephraimite, if we can for a second. As the men of the town knock on the door, he goes out to protest. He says two things, doesn't he? He says, one, this is a vile thing. And he says, also, this man is my guest. What the men of the town propose is a doubly disgraceful thing for the man. He, he should be protecting his guest. But what does he do? I mean, it's disgusting, isn't it? He offers his own daughter and the concubine of the guest to, to these men. Essentially, he's viewing women there as just property to be abused. God in his creation, a complete opposite of that, makes men and women both in his image and treasures them equally, and values them equally. But this man, you see, this, this old man, this Ephraimite here, who's introduced in verse 16, is just utterly blind to how he is sinning here. And how easily that can happen when we take our eyes off God and his loving word, where he graciously directs us and, and causes us to live and or points us to a way of living that brings us good and happiness. How easily that can happen when we take our eyes off him. From this tragic episode of sin, it leads to ever more tragic sin and death again and again and again. So in chapter 20, let me summarise that very quickly. Uh, the Benjaminites refused to give up the offenders, the men who had been knocking on the door of Gibeah and raping the woman. And that in end, in chapter 20, essentially leads to a civil war. 
the, the war kind of is, uh, the machinations of that are kind of spelt out in chapter 20. And it leads to the near extinction of the tribe of Benjamin. You get to chapter 21 and the Israelites now are weeping for the loss of the tribe that they've just nearly made extinct. And therefore they try to create these inventive ways now to steal women, essentially to resurrect the tribe. And if you turn right to the end of chapter 21, verse 23, you'll see how awful and how low the people of God get. As they permit the men of Benjamin in the celebration at Silo to to sort of sneak up to these women as they're dancing and enjoying themselves, to steal them, to catch them is the phrase that they use in verse 23 of chapter 21. This problem began with the unfaithfulness of one woman. And it leads to all of this. And the whole book finishes. Look how it finishes. If there was ever an underestimation. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. As I said before, man-made religion brings man-made morality. The effects here, when they've moved from God as revealed in his word. Look at all the things that have happened. I could... Could, this list could go on forever. But yeah, marriage is, is degraded. Wisdom is absolutely nowhere. There's self-deception. There's shameful acts. There's the lack of hospitality that is even shown in, in Gibeah. Wickedness, lust, abuse of women. There's a defending of the guilty in chapter 20. And it ends with kind of superstitious worship in chapter 21. I think the point here is that how much of this is us? How much do you see of yourself in this? See, by nature, without God's word directing us in our lives, we would do as we saw fit. And what carnage that would be. Perhaps not to this level. We're kind of thinking, no, we're, we're civil, we're British, we live in a... You know, yes, we do live in a very civilised culture and we should thank God for that. And the effects of God's word on that culture over the last number of hundred years. But do recognise, we may only be a few generations away. Did you notice who was the Levite who led the worship of the idols to the Danites in chapter 18 of, of this book? Did you notice who that was? It was called Jonathan. If you look, um, just turn back, chapter 18, verse 30. It's extraordinary, isn't it? There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of who? Moses. Just two generations away. And we get one of the greatest leaders of God's people. Is now his grandson. is leading the idol worship in day. <coughs> Chapter 21, just to summarise it, is essentially clueless repentance. They try to resolve what they know to be a disgrace, but they do so with absolute any reference to God. What do we learn from this chapter, though, these chapters? I guess first and foremost, when you look at these chapters, you just recognise your utter need for true repentance and true forgiveness. Where there is sin in our lives, we need sorrow for that sin. And not just the sin itself, but the motives behind that sin as well. I guess if you're anything like me, you will want to examine your heart and your life, as I have had to this week. It's been painful. I guess you need to see, what have you justified yourself what have, you, what have you made acceptable in your sight which is just evil in God's eyes? 
Yes, these chapters should truly revolt you. They are horrible. But they are a portrait of sin. And you ought to gaze on the portrait that is you, if you like, and be equally revolted. But see your need for a loving saviour. Your desperate need for a loving saviour. Practically, if you look at chapter 19, I wonder if you see resonances of yourself in any of that. Let me just practically apply one or two of these things. I know it's painful. Perhaps you see resonances of yourself in the old man who abused the women in his care, who was harsh as he spoke, who made women objects, whether at home or at work. You may need to consider your ways. Repent. And seek forgiveness today if that is you. And strive for tenderness and sacrificial love as you have been loved by Christ. Perhaps you see resonances of yourself in the men of the town of Gibeah. You're out of control. Come to the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. Know his love. His ultimate care is forgiveness and seek true repentance. Perhaps you're just like Israel, you're trying to cover up, which is essentially what they try and do in the last two chapters. They just try and smear it over, yeah, kind of the mess. If that is you, just trying to cover up what has been in the past, come to the exposing light of God's word and know the wonderful freedom of forgiveness in him. Primarily, all of those things are saying, as the whole of this book shouts out, come back to God in his word. If you are struggling with sin, know that there is always, you know, there's always that relationship, isn't it, between the times when we go away from God and his word and the times when there's more sin in our lives. So come back to him. Come back to his word and know his forgiveness. As you forget God's word, you always forget God's command. I'm going to finish very quickly with just one or two comments, really, about the ultimate effects of man-made religion. The last few uh, chapters, in fact, the whole book of Judges has been a sobering reminder of the ultimate effects. Man-made religion leads to sin, which ultimately leads to death. Romans 6.23 is pretty clear on that, isn't it? The wages of sin, death. And that is the story of Judges... And do note, this is amongst God's people. Where there should have been sorrow, there's just pride. That's all you can see here. There's no role model for you to follow in Judges, I don't think. As Zach brilliantly said this morning, it is a cycle of apostasy. It's the sin, the raider, the cry, the judge, the peace. We've seen that every single week. But here as we finish this book, we just see sin. And we just see raider. There's no deliverer. There's no peace. There is only death as this book finishes. There's only one ultimate effect of the rebellion against God and his death. James 1 verse 15 helpfully reminds us in the New Testament, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And if you are here and you're not a Christian, can I just say you are so welcome I know this has been a toughie, <laughs> really, has been a very tough week. 
But can I gently ask you, you must know in your own heart and you must recognize whether it's your thought life, your actions, whatever it is, that you're not perfect. And can I gently ask you, what are you going to do? You've got a perfectly loving, a perfectly just God. What are you going to do? What do you expect him to do? The Bible tells us his judgment will be more fair, but yet more severe than what the Benjaminites received in chapter 20. See, what you believe affects what you do. And what you do has ultimate effects. We've all sinned and therefore, friends, we must turn to God. There must be sorrow for our sin. We must know its weight. We must know its consequences. If we've been turning our backs on God, turn to him. I'm just going to give you a moment of quiet to do that. It's a different way of doing things. Normally we've had a time of confession before, the, um, halfway through the service. But I want to give it, given the weight of what we've been looking at here, I want us to have some time to examine our own hearts, to examine our own lives, our motives, perhaps our spending, our ambitions. Where is your man-made religion in your life? Where have you strayed from God and his word? I'm going to give you now a moment of quiet to come to God in prayer before we pray the words of the confession together. They're on the sheets, your service sheets, just on the inside flap, the confession on the column marked congregational prayers. Just a moment of quiet before we pray that together. So if we want to pray together, prayer of confession just on the sheets there. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and confess our many sins, which we have committed by thought, word and deed, against your divine majesty, provoking your wrath and indignation against us. We earnestly repent and are truly sorry for all our misdoings. The memory of them grieves us. The burden of them is more than we can bear. Have mercy on us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past, and grant that from now on we may always serve and please you in lives wholly renewed by your Spirit, to the honour and glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We could finish there. And it would be absolutely fine to do that. This is the longest talk I think I've ever done in this church. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. We don't often focus on sin and its consequences. But I think once in four years isn't too bad. But I don't think the passage allows me to stay there. I've got two minutes to finish. You see, I think there's, there's something in the text here which points me somewhere else, to somebody else. Why don't you just turn to chapter 19, verse 28 for a second. You see the Levite. He's saying to his, his dead concubine here, 
Look at the words. They're horrible. They're so cold. They're so harsh, aren't they? Get up. Let's go. He's so self-absorbed, so strikingly the opposite of another who said, I will give myself up for you. The one who got up and went. The Levite uses concubine. He sacrificed her to protect himself. Whereas we know someone who did something completely different. He was willing to sacrifice himself for you. He suffered the greatest abuse that this world has ever seen. Taking the judgment and justice that your sin deserves. The terrors that are depicted in this book show us that God is not unaware of the trials and the troubles that are facing the people of Iraq right now. As we reckon probably one to two thousand people will be slaughtered, beheaded today. Uh, He knows the pain and the torments of your heart. He's not removed from them. If he was, he would have deleted these chapters. But why are these chapters here in this Bible? Could it be that God has kindness given us these chapters to show how sin, yes, disgusts them? And to show us where sin leads, yes, death, we've seen that already. But the, answer, the unanswered question of Judges is this, isn't it? What is the answer? Who is going to become? Who's going to be the judge deliverer that we've been waiting for? All the rest have failed. In 1 Samuel, the people cry out for the king. And it, you're going to be looking at that in the Bible over you. It's exciting. And who, where does he come from? Where does the king come from? Well, it's Saul. Where does he come from? Gibeah. But he's not the answer. Go back to chapter 17, verse 7. Where's the Levite from? Bethlehem, Judea. Go on, chapter 19, verse 1. Where's, where's the concubine from there? Of the, the other Levite, Bethlehem, Judea. Do you think the writer might be pointing somewhere, particularly? It's interesting. What's the following book of Judges? So just flip on one page. It's Ruth. Where's that all focused? Bethlehem, in Judea. Uh, and Ruth, uh, what about her? Well, um, she meets Boaz in Bethlehem. Of Judea, and she is, uh, has a child called Obed, and he's the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. And then you turn to Ma- Matthew chapter 1, and you realize that as you go down the generations, that leads to who? The Lord Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Romans 6, verse 23 says this The wages of sin is death. Yes, I've pointed that out, but listen. It finishes like this. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. From Bethlehem in Judea. We need to trust him. We know the severity of our sin as we've looked at it in these chapters. And we understand the weight of it. But he was the one who lived the perfect life. uh, Who died a substitutionary death on the cross for you in your place. And rose again to offer new life for those who put their trust in him. Trust him. With everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. As we come to that very sobering end of the book of Judges, there is only one way it could point. 
And we recognise, as we look at our own sinfulness, our need for Jesus. We don't want to make a, a very quick step. We do want to essentially weep for the, the fact that we have turned our backs on you again and again and again. The Israelites essentially are a mirror, I guess, to many of our lives and our hearts. And there should be sober reflection. And yet also, there should be great joy. As the one from Bethlehem in Judea, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our perfect judge to deliver. He will deliver us not to a peace that lasts for a few years like Gideon or Othniel, but the one who brings us peace for eternity. Because he restores right relationship with us and you. May we trust the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.